Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Professional golfer and two-time Majors championship winner Gary Lester, nicknamed Bubba Watson Jr. from his autobiography entitled Up and Down, Victories and Struggles in the Course of Life, writes this. Everybody battles with their own personal set of demons, and if you know anything at all about me, you know I've battled plenty of them as well. The difference between most people and me, I suppose, is that most folks don't do all the good and bad things in front of millions of people. Imagine how it feels watching your own bad moments get replayed over and over and over again on ESPN, knowing you can never really take it back, no matter how big or level of regret. I can't help but wonder after that if perhaps Thomas might have felt the same way after he said those well-known words we read this evening, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it, earning him the nickname Doubting Thomas. And ever since, typecasting him as a doubter and a skeptic. Speaking of nicknames, I'm curious. How many of you here have some sort of nickname? Now let me ask you this. How many of you here have one, don't love it, but can't shake it? It was the summer before my freshman year in high school and I'd landed a job working at a summer camp in the beautiful forest hills of Los Gatos, California. It was a plush, hoity-toity area of Northern California. My job was to be the camp keeper. Yes, It was as glorious and financially lucrative as it sounds. (laughs) It was my job to do the laundry, clean the swimming pool shower shack, pick up an empty trash, help the cook when needed, and most importantly, clean all the camp toilets. I loved my job. (laughs) Actually, I lied. I hated it. And if that wasn't enough, one of the best perks of my job was that I was given a very cool nickname, Biff. (laughs) For those of you who don't know what a Biff is, it's another nickname for toilet. I was Biff all summer and every year after that. What's really interesting, which is basically code for annoying, is now some 35 years later, kids who were campers then and now are adults, grown adults, will call me and the first thing they say when I answer the phone is, hello, is this Biff? I'm a grown adult. I'm married. I have children, grown children. I have two dogs. I drive a Honda Civic. And I have a real job. Well, kind of. So no matter what I do, I will always be Biff to those 
who worked there and campers who attended the camp as well. This evening, I want to share with you some reflections from our gospel passage that were just read to us. And I want to specifically look at the person of Thomas nicknamed Doubting Thomas, found in the resurrection appearance to Thomas. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was shocked at the variety of opinions from different commentaries, teachers, writers, preachers, when it came to the opinion and views concerning Thomas. There were some who believed that when it comes to Thomas, Thomas has had, I guess, sort of a rough ride within the history of the church. But then there were others, or actually, excuse me, as one British preacher commented, poor chap, I think we've run him down a bit too much, is what he said. At the same time, there were some who strongly viewed Thomas as this arrogant, closed-minded truth denier who lacked manners and integrity, as I heard one preacher call him. On top of that, there were some modernists who loved to view Thomas as this sort of hero, courageous doubter, making him out to be some sort of patron saint, pop idol for the atheists and the doubters of this age. So it became very clear very quickly that in order for me to balance all of this, I would need to not just present Thomas as an unbelieving doubter, but a doubter who became a firm, firm believer. Which is, I guess, my hope and prayer this evening as I share with you. There are three thoughts that I want to share with you concerning Thomas and the subject of doubt. The first is this. Doubt is sometimes, necess- doubt is sometimes a necessary place for some to finally believe. Second is doubt doesn't always deserve a second visit, but because of Jesus, gets one anyway. And third, doubt can sometimes display a deeper desire. I want to invite you to open up your bulletins and look with me at John chapter 20, starting at verse 24. John chapter 20, starting at verse 24. It reads, now Thomas was one of the twelve called the twin. Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. We're told that Thomas was one of Jesus' twelve apostles. Another name for Thomas was Didymus, which comes from the Greek word meaning twin. Not much is really known about Thomas and Nothing is ever even mentioned about his twin in Scripture. Most of what we do know about Thomas is actually found in the Gospel of John. And while Thomas wasn't one of the more well-known disciples, he was popular enough to earn the nickname Doubting Thomas. He was given this nickname simply because he did not believe Jesus had risen from the dead. The first time Jesus appears to the disciples is in the upper room, we're told in verse 24, and Thomas was not with them. Scripture never really tells us why Thomas wasn't there with the other disciples on that first Easter evening. Plenty of commentators and preachers have speculated of reasons perhaps why he was not there, but reality is we just don't know. 
Verse 25 tells us that eventually Thomas emerges from hiding and the disciples share with him the missed series of events. Saying to him exuberantly, we have seen the Lord. However, Thomas doesn't match their excitement, but instead responds saying to them, unless I see the, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe making it clear in the words of Reverend Chad Lawrence from a sermon I heard him preach a number of years ago, and I'll never forget. There is no joy in Thomasville. Which brings me to my first of three thoughts that I want to share with you concerning Thomas and the subject to doubt. Doubt is sometimes a necessary place for some to finally believe. I think one of the reasons I believe that is because doubt is sometimes... Um, a place, excuse me, one of the reasons I think doubt is sometimes a necessary place for some to finally believe is because when it comes to grappling with one's doubts, I think there's great value in what I call the wrestling process of doubt. This hasn't always been the case for me, however. A number of years ago, I was a youth pastor back in California, and there was a particular student who drove me absolutely crazy. After every youth group, well, actually even before that, during youth group, I would preach, and he would just sit there, arms crossed, staring at me. I could just imagine what was going through his mind. Skeptical, irritated, questioning. And after every talk I gave, at the very end, he would come up to me and just literally pepper me with question after question after question after question about my talk. It irritated me to no end. I guess if I think about it, reality is I probably shouldn't have been so easily annoyed. Instead, I wish I'd have been more patient and realized that when it comes to grappling with doubt, reality is just some people need to doubt before they can believe. There are times for some, doubt leads to questions, and questions lead to answers, and eventually those turn one's heart and mind passionately to fall in love with Jesus. I have a close friend whose father was a devout atheist. Years of atheism. And then, Unbeknown to us, he became a Christian. It was the happiest day of my friend's life. And as we look back and we turn the pages of her father's life, when he really began to make a move, it was when he started asking questions. Up until that point, he never asked any of those, any questions. But we can pinpoint when he started to ask questions is when the dial began to move and he began to ask questions and become a Christian. Now, don't misunderstand me. Reality is this. I believe there are times when doubt can become a wrecking ball. It's when doubt becomes stubbornness and stubbornness becomes prideful lifestyle that doubt does its greatest harm. Over the past months, I've been reading a book entitled Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. If you have never read it, I highly recommend this book. 
It's written by a gentleman named Nabel Qureshi. Nabel describes in detail his dramatic journey from Islam to Christianity. Out of some 53 chapters, 33 of them, Nabel wrestles with Jesus' resurrection and claim to be God. It's only in the final few chapters of this book, Nabel, while he tries his best to seek Allah, eventually falls in love with Christ and becomes a Christian. Truth be told, if, you've ever, if you ever read this book, you may think as I did, Nabel's doubting is exhausting. But yet, it's also refreshing. One of the things that's shaken me over these past few couple years is the discovery of Mother Teresa's book of letters. If you don't know what they are, it's a series of letters that she privately wrote that reveal for the very first time that she was deeply tormented about her faith and suffered periods of doubt with God. I'm not sure if they should have been published, but her writings remind me that faith and belief can at times be tougher to live out than it appears. I think one commentator affirmed this by saying, the story of Thomas reminds us that faith is not always perhaps not even typically a straightforward affair. Lord, I believe, help, thine my, help thou mine unbelief. is a heart's cry that arises across the ages. As Thomas models it here, faith is a battle between unbelief at times and is agonizing. At best, we are a mixture of faith and doubt combined. Dr. Carl Truman spoke a few years back on this passage, and I'll never forget his sermon. And he said something that I thought was so profound. He said, I think in some ways, Thomas does a great service to the church by demanding proof. His comment reminds me that church going, or maybe just let me say this, casa going is not for believers only. Casa is also for doubters for Thomases, explorers, and half-believers. Which brings me to my second of three thoughts that I want to look at with you this morning. Doubt doesn't always deserve a second visit, but because of Jesus, it gets one. We read in verse 26 and 27, one week later, the same time, the same place, the same day of the week, the same bat channel, the same doors are locked, the same people are there, except now, Thomas is with them. Again, Jesus comes through locked doors and stands among them and says in verse, um, verse 19, peace be with you. In my opinion, Jesus had all right to dismiss Thomas and not provide him with a second visit, especially after such an irreverent request. I mean, did Thomas really have the gall and the guts to demand such a thing of Jesus? And yet, Jesus provided it. You see, Jesus knew this second visit would be exactly what Thomas needed. It would be the defining moment for Thomas that would erase all doubt and replace it with a renewed confidence in him. And I'm extremely grateful for it. You see, let me say this to you, church. I have loved ones 
and perhaps you do too, who are skeptical. They're irreverent, out of line. They're faithless and don't deserve a second visit. And the story of Thomas reminds us Jesus was willing to go to great lengths to reach Thomas no matter how incredulous he was. I call this type of lengths a movement of love. I think this movement of love is best described by recovering alcoholic author and former Franciscan priest Brandon Manning from a book he wrote entitled The Furious Longing of God. Brandon writes this. Imagine a stormy day at sea. Your ship is yielding to a relentless wind, pummeled by crashing waves, subject to the awesome force of nature, a force that is both fierce and majestic, a power that is nothing short of furious. Such is God's intense, consuming love for his children. It is a love that knows no limits and no boundaries, a love that will go to great lengths, any lengths, any risks to pursue us. That is, my friends, a movement of love. This brings me to my third and final thought I want to share with you this evening. Doubt can sometimes display a deeper desire. There's times when, after I'm done reading John chapter 20 and Thomas's words, that I've been left baffled by Thomas's response. Why in the world was, would Thomas be so unwilling to, be, to, to not believe? I mean, after all, he'd spent almost three years with Jesus. He'd also had a front row seat to watching Jesus perform some of the most incredible miracles, turning water into wine. He'd seen Jesus do the impossible by feeding 5,000 people with only five loaves of bread and two small fish. He'd seen him heal the lame, the blind, and the bleeding, calm the storm, calm the storms of the sea and walk on water, cast out demons. Thomas was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And according to verse 30, 30, lots of other things that weren't even written about. He'd also heard Jesus say constantly that he would pass through death and back into life on the third day after his crucifixion. So why, Thomas? Why such unbelief? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt left out, overlooked, rejected, salty, as some kids at Casa like to say? Maybe you weren't invited to a particular friend's impromptu get-together. You discovered that there's a group chat that was going on without you intentionally. A friend or even a sibling chooses not to include you in their wedding party. You were passed up on a job promotion. Perhaps it seems that Jesus always shows up for others, but not for you. Have you ever had the opportunity to go somewhere with a group, perhaps a movie, and you say, I'm not going to go. Then the group goes and comes back and can't stop raving about it. This was waterworks for me with Kevin Costner. 
It was so annoying. Have you ever listened to them go on and on? Meanwhile, you fight the feelings of jealousy, and if you'd only gone, thoughts run through your mind? Well, I suppose that's a little bit of what Thomas experienced in the face of unsurpassed joy. In verse 27, we're told that Jesus tells Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. It's interesting. If you Google pictures or images of Thomas and Jesus, you'll eventually come across a painting by the Italian Baroque master Caravaggio. I'm not sure if any of you have ever seen it, but it's amazing. It's called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. And it's a picture that displays Thomas putting his fingers into Christ's side's wounds with Jesus guiding his hands. Yet as gripping as this painting is, Scripture never tells us whether Thomas actually did that, whether he acted on Jesus' invitation. The assumption is that actually many scholars say that he didn't. So I'm kind of left with a question, and that's this. If he didn't, then what convinced Thomas not to put his fingers where the nails were and his hands into Jesus' side? Perhaps it was Jesus' presence in the upper room and his love for him shown through his wounds. You see, if you've ever experienced Jesus' presence and his love for you, then you would understand why Thomas would cry out with all his might, my Lord and my God, when he saw Jesus. Those words were not exclaimed by anyone until Thomas had actually spoken them for the first time. Nothing, quite, nothing quiets, calms, or soothes our greatest need and problems more than his presence and his love shown for us in his wounds. C.H. Spurgeon once said, My hearer, Whensoever thou soul is clouded, turn thou to thy wounds, which shine like a constellation of five bright stars. Look not to thy own wounds, nor to thine own pains, or sins, or prayers, or tears, but remember that with his stripes we are healed. Gaze upon thy Redeemer's wounds, if thou wouldst find comforts. I wonder when Jesus singles Thomas out, quoting back those words he had so foolishly spoken throughout the week, if Jesus' words pierced his heart. In essence, as one writer put it, Jesus is saying to Thomas, I heard you when you thought I didn't. When you thought I didn't care. I was present when you thought I was absent. Can you imagine Thomas' words? He heard my gruesome words, and yet he still loves me. So, in the words of Pastor Ethan, let me try to land this plane as I close. I want to finish by sharing a quote by a writer and professor who I don't normally see eye to eye on, and don't worry, they're not a professor here at Grove City, but I think they actually get this one right. Jesus will come to meet us wherever we are, even if it's out on the far edges of faith that have forgotten how to believe. Since I'm a minister to families, it's only appropriate, I think, for me to end with a story about a student. His name was Cameron. 
And as I mentioned earlier, I was a youth director in California. Cameron was in the seventh grade. The best way for me to describe Cameron is he was squirrely. He came from a great family, but he was squirrely. He wasn't the instigator, but he was sure the follower, and he could find his way to be the instigator at times. For two years, we, we dealt with Cameron. I use the word dealt. There are far more words that I could describe for Cameron. Youth leaders would come to me and say, with their hands up, I don't know what to do. Eventually, I came to the point where I just said, Lord, I don't have favorites, but I have those who I dislike, and Cameron <laughs> wins. Well, Cameron's best friend, who was the instigator, he, he actually moved away, and there was Cameron all by himself. I had no idea what to do with Cameron. Now, our church was in a city, not like a big city, but a city, and it uh, was in downtown sketchy neighborhood and our youth group would play basketball in the church parking lot which is adjacent to a, an alleyway it was kind of the kind of sketchy alleyway that well one of our youth in our youth group got his bike stolen on youth group night that's the kind of alleyway it was and I didn't know what to do about that and I thought about hiring a security guard and I happened to bump into Cameron, and we were talking, and he was telling me about how he wanted to be an MP. I thought, wow, that's uh, interesting. And then it struck me. Cameron could be a great security guard. <laughs> so I talked to Cameron about it, and he agreed. And I'm not even sure if Cameron bought the T-shirt, or I did, but Cameron, the next uh, youth group gathering, bought a shirt that said security on it. And every Wednesday when we got together to play basketball or do whatever, four square in that parking lot, Cameron would monitor the alleyway in his sweet black neon green security shirt. Cameron loved being the security guard and I loved Cameron being there. But that's not how it ends. Cameron then, we were talking one day, and I realized Cameron was a lot smarter than I give him credit for, and so I decided Cameron should be um, in charge of our, our little youth group snack bar. Now, when I was in charge of the snack bar, we never made any money. As a matter of fact, we went in debt. <laughs> it was kind of like that way when I, was, when I owned a crepery at a business as well. <laughs> but that's a whole other story. So I talked to Cameron. He said, yeah, I'll be the, 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 uh, in charge of it. And Cameron did a phenomenal job, and he even made money for us. For four years, Cameron was our security guard, and he was our snack guy. And then one day, Cameron went up to a camp, summer camp, and he fell in love with Jesus. But here's the crazy part about this story. Cameron didn't become a Christian because of my great preaching, as great as it was. Cameron didn't come to Jesus because we picked the perfect songs and they were really good and we had a great worship band. Cameron came to Jesus 
because he found he was needed. And there was a place, and Jesus found the most crazy way to grab, to grab him, to capture him, to rescue him. And I think that's what this story with Thomas tells us today. That Jesus found Thomas, even though he didn't deserve it, even though he may not have even been expecting it, Jesus found him because he has a furious, longing, passionate care for us that is patient and loving even when we don't deserve it. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.